Welcome to the new Health Club podcast. This is where the conversation around the new age of mental wellness begins. I think that psychedelics will play a big part in this, and there's a lot of scientific research happening and an industry growing around the topic as we speak. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health and personal progress in the future? On the new Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors from the emerging new world of psychedelics and mental wellness. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous and you should not do drugs. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs may be punishable by law. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. Today I talk to J.R. Ran, the CEO and founder of MindMed. And it's a good thing that my voice reminds him of the German spy in Homeland, played by Nina Hoss. But back to MindMed, which is creating transformative medicines to address big problems in society, like, for example, anxiety, ADHD or addiction. All this by advancing psychedelic-inspired medicines through clinical trials. At the moment, MindMed is collaborating with the Psychedelic Research Laboratory at the University of Basel and the University of Maastricht. I talked to JR about his journey from Uber to the CEO and founder of a big psychedelic company, which aims to create the antibiotic for addiction, as JR says. We talk about JR's investor, Kevin O'Leary, from the TV show Shark Tank. Some of you might know him as Mr. Wonderful. And why names like him could have an impact on the destigmatization of mental health and psychedelics. JR and I talk about dopamine and why the competition to raise our dopamine levels in our modern world today present a problem that is connected to our daily mental health. And there's much more to learn from JR and about MindMed. So please enjoy the show. We are very excited to have JR run on the show. And every time I have to think about your first name, of course, I think about JR now. <laughs> for some for some of your subscribers they will understand that for some they won't some but won't. nobody shot me don't worry <laughs> but i mean still um jr ran is the founder of mindmed one of the you could say biggest startups companies right now that's already um has gone live already um and you guys are actually one of the thriving forces in a new psychedelic field you could say that i mean it seems that every day there's a new there's news about you guys so but i would like to start um with your history a little bit since you you came from uber and got into psychedelics so maybe you lead us <laughs> yeah so it's a it's thank you for having me i i appreciate it um i think we need to have more podcasts like this we need to have more content um on how we can destigmatize psychedelics because i think that's the the single biggest threat at the moment to um a lot of the stuff that we as a company are working on and, a, and as a community are working on so i i very much value um folks that are helping to to destigmatize the space um But yeah, sure. If you want to know about my journey on on how I went from um, making taxis a little bit cheaper to um, now doing clinical trials at the FDA, it's it's a good question and it's a valid question. 
Um, but it really starts with me. Um, and uh, not in a narcissistic way, but in a, I was, a, you know, I am a patient. I'm a potential patient. Um, I struggled with mental health and addiction really at the, at the height of Silicon Valley. I was, I was going through, you know, I went through the Y Combinator program. I was an earlier employee at Uber and um, I was struggling. And I think that's a hard thing to admit, you know, as much as there's a stigma around psychedelics, there's also a massive stigma uh, around mental health, especially when you're in a performance society, performance-driven society uh, and ecosystem out, out in, in Silicon Valley. Um, it's hard to say that, you know, you've got a problem. And I did have a problem. Um, and fortunately, uh, a very close friend of mine recommended that I maybe consider psychedelics and and uh, see if these could help solve some of the issues that I was having. And they did. Um, and so I think that set me on a new, a new trajectory in life. Um, I was looking at how I could start a new company, what I was going to do. Um, and about two and a half years ago, I really came to the conclusion that mental health was a massive market that was underserved and there was really no disruptive technologies for that space. Um, and so I knew I wanted to do something in mental health. I had just had these great psychedelic experiences. And um, yeah, I think the, the stars aligned and, and that was the basis for me learning more about the psychedelic space, meeting researchers, meeting Dr. Leakby and Franz Wallenweider and, and, and others um, to really form the, the basis and the initial infrastructure for my mental I mean, did you? I mean, did you have any idea before what psychedelics really were? Or I mean, because most people, I feel, had this idea of, um, yeah, I mean, rock stars, Charles Manson, <laughs> um, doing acid yeah. in a weird context of not maybe even weird, but maybe in a counterculture coded environment. So. So was that your perception too, or did you already know something about Albert Hoffman eventually, or have you heard about these kind of studies? Well, my dad was a big deadhead. So uh, by, by nature, I grew up, you know, listening to Jerry Garcia and, um, oh. you know, sort of, uh, we went to Vermont a lot. We went to Ben and Jerry, you know, the Ben and Jerry's value. So there was, that, that whole era was instilled in me. Um, but that's not to say, you know, my dad was, you know, at age eight saying, oh, you know, acid's a great thing. You should really try it. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I grew up in an environment that um, didn't stigmatize these substances maybe in the way that, that maybe other more conservative families might. Um, but at the same time, I didn't really know about um, these substances growing up as a kid, they, you know, acid was still in my mind. Yeah. Like it had this negative connotation in, in the sixties and um, this sort of revolutionary period and not really until actually even after college um, did I, it was really in my professional life that um, I sort of understood the power of these substances and what, and what they could do to be catalysts for change. Um, so I, you know, 
I knew who Albert Hoffman was. Um, I, uh, you know, I think the guy is, you know, quite frankly, one of the most significant inventors um, out there in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, if you just look at what he created at Sandoz, it's actually quite incredible. I mean, even Novartis, I think they're still making like hundreds of millions of dollars a year off of some of his inventions. So clearly the guy knew what he was doing. Um, and that was, that was also a cool uh, experience for me, which was to actually go to Basel. And, um, you know, really, this is the birthplace of modern psychedelics in, in many ways, right? I mean, these sub, you know, substances have been around, psilocybin and, and, and um, you know, mescaline and, and, and other substances, but LSD, um, I believe, really was the catalyst um, for this, what, what is becoming um, a new renaissance in the space. And so for us to strike a partnership um, with Dr. Matthias Lichty at University Hospital Basel in the birthplace of LSD, you know, that, that was a momentous event. And, uh, um, you know, I think uh, they've done a lot of work over there. Um, the Swiss typically, you know, are a little bit quieter, as are Germans, <laughs> about the work that they are working on. Um, but uh, it is, it's quite significant. So, and um, I mean, when did you, when did you get in touch with the whole, let's say, uh, Swiss school of psychedelics? So you, so you got in touch with Mr. Lichty and, and kind of suggested to collaborate or to start a study? Yeah, we, with Dr. Lichty, um, we basically saw an opportunity that um, he had been doing all this clinical research on both MDMA and LSD, right? Uh, he has done, I think, the most amount of human safety trials on, on MDMA as an example, and um, probably the most amount of uh, human safety and, and clinical trials on LSD. Um, so this was, for us, a ripe opportunity because nobody else had actually done the clinical trials like this and had done them in a, in, to a standard that was this high. And so what we saw was the opportunity, we can acquire the data to all of these, um, of these trials. Uh, there's a lot of interesting data in there that not all of which was published. And it allows us to create new technologies um, based on some of these substances that will uh, help therapists and will help patients. And then the other opportunity we saw was to do future clinical trials with, with Dr. Leakey. Um, and so this was super important for us because it, it serves in many ways as, as an R&D uh, collaborator and innovator um, where we can work on things with him that, um, you know, we find interesting. Uh, so um, it, was a, it was a match, you know, made in, in psychedelic heaven, if, if, if there is one. <laughs> <laughs> there is one, I'm sure. Um, what I find interesting is that, I mean, pretty early on, if you start to read about MindMed and you, it's like, that you're addressing very regularly two kind of, let's say, significant problems in the psychedelic field, like the recreational problem and the anecdotal problem. Like, obviously, like, um, yeah. there's this discussion about saying, like, you should not engage with any kind of recreational, I don't know, like, 
communities, um, support systems, and um, and the other one is of course the idea or the the, or the the fact that some experiences are just let's say are only anecdotal. So was that two things that you addressed in the company very early on, or was that something that just came? suddenly was there as a question when you had started? Well, look, when we talk about recreational, um, people are going to use these substances no matter what. What, you know, we as a company say or what governments say or, you know, what scientists say. Mm -hmm. But our approach is that there is a group of folks that are scared to use these substances. They don't feel, you know, there's, there's a lot of negative stigma left over from the sixties and continues to pervade, you know, modern culture. Um, what our objective as a company is to gather the data to prove that something is safe and effective. And we just happen to be working on psychedelics, right? It doesn't, it, whether this was, you know, some, something derived from some non-hallucinogenic shrub in, in the Amazon, it would be irrelevant to us. What we see are the opportunity to, you know, reinvent a new paradigm around mental health that um, actually wants to solve the underlying issues that are, that are causing um, some of these, these illnesses and diseases. And with that approach, um, the, for us, the most advantageous and efficient path to do that um, is through the FDA pathway. Mm -hmm. And so when we set up MindMed, I knew that uh, we could not take a recreational approach. Um, these needed, you know, the work that we had to be doing had to be legal at a federal level. That is the only way that you can attract real institutional capital to create systemic change in, in, in mental health, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so... That was a requirement for a lot of our investors that anything we do had to be federally legal. Um, and my co-founder, Stephen Hurst, he's been advising a lot of nonprofits in the space, including the Hefter Institute and USONA uh, and other uh, psilocybin clinical trials um, on how you convert these into FDA, into the FDA pathway. Um, you know, the, the, the academic research. And so I saw a huge opportunity to work with Steve um, because of that, um, but also that he had been working in the drug development space for 40 years uh, and had a lot of, you know, very competent folks that he could bring along in setting up the company. And so that is the partnership we formed, um, was that, you know, this is clearly uh, a disruptive technology, um, but also at the same time, we have to approach it in a very traditional manner uh, or the government and society is not going to value the data that we are generating. Okay. But, and then also later, I mean, not, not later in, in, in the founding process. I mean, it was pretty, pretty fast, I feel. Uh, Kevin O'Leary came into the picture and I was wondering if his kind of investment in you had changed, um, yeah, the game maybe even for you, like the whole, I was like a, like a game changer also in terms of having him talk about on, you know, on American TV about it and explaining yeah. what psychedelics could be something that's really solving a lot of 
really severe problems in a bigger way. So how did that change basically if some, let's say you could say, I mean, in that case, it's even like a TV celebrity <laughs> um, <laughs> comes into the picture and kind of takes over your PR in a way, like very fast. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he ever took over our PR, but um, what he did do for me as a CEO was solidify what my approach was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he had never invested in a cannabis company. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that was, you know, he has institutional funds and he, he could never find a way to, to legally invest. Um, without without risk to him. And so his main requirement was, look, this is very interesting science. It's a very interesting company. And clearly these are large societal problems, but I'm not going to invest unless you're going to do it in a way that complies with federal laws. Mm -hmm. And um, that is really, you know, how uh, he was able to invest was because we had had that strategy from the beginning. Um, and, and, and Steve, you know, also really impressed that upon me was, look, this has to happen through the FDA pathway. Um, there might be eventual, you know, future endeavors, maybe not for MindMed, but in, 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 you know, how these substances can be recalibrated in society. But right now there's a lot of patients, there's millions of people that need these medicines, uh, and we should not, you know, break from that mission. And so that's how we've sort of always maintained uh, our, our thesis on the space. But I think coming back to your, to your point is, you know, you have this influx of celebrity um, and influx of influential people like Peter Thiel um, coming into the space. And to many that have been working in the space for, for years, um, you know, that's it's a lot of star power all at once. There's a lot of capital inflowing. Um, there's a lot of bad actors also in flowing, right? I mean, there's, we, we get like a, you know, five pitch decks a week from people that have no experience with psychedelic medicine, wouldn't even know where to start, um, coming into the space. That's worrying. Um, but it is also encouraging because it means that there ultimately is a demand for, for what we are working on. And so I think companies like ourselves, compass and a tie um, will become stronger uh, in, in that we will maintain our, the approach that we think is most going to be most beneficial to society and patients. And, and that's clearly the FDA pathway. Um, at the same time, you know, coming back to this issue of celebrity, that is a way to destigmatize. I don't, I don't think we should fear that. You know, if you have Mr. Wonderful talking about psychedelics, um, <laughs> right. I think that's kind of wonderful, right? I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's not, uh, that's not a bad thing. You know, for, for, for us as companies, um, one of our biggest struggles is to convince people that these are actually medicines, right? So we can, we can, do, we can prove that with data, but we also need to soften these substances up and, and make them presentable to the average person that we we're trying to help. And, you know, for somebody in middle America, um, the talk of LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, I mean, these still hold some serious, these words hold some serious weight to them. And so I think we need to have as much conversation about 
the outcomes that are potential from these substances. Let's stop talking about the substances themselves and let's start talking more about what are the potential outcomes here? How can we help people? And, you know, it's great that there's been a lot of research on the substances because it's, it's, it's infrastructure and it's a basis. Um, but we need to really start talking about outcomes. Yeah, I mean, the substances per se, I mean, I had this, when I had this conversation with uh, Robin Card Harris, I thought it was so interesting that we talked about that the substances per se, either it's either psilocybin or LSD or ibogaine should be like, almost like, um, not, they should be genderless, they should be like, this is the female drug, this is the male, you know, kind of driven LSD, it would be more male orientated and psilocybin had more like a feminine thing. This whole thing is, I think it's, um, it's good if that kind of goes away, I feel. Yeah, I think it, it, it needs to, um, yeah. you know, not mm. just on psychedelics, but in, in general, uh, in society, we need to, need to deal with a lot of issues, right? And, and, yeah, and it's think, kind of a very, think, a very yeah. strange fake spiritual approach to this sometimes, I feel, in a way. Um, but uh, what I find particularly interesting, though, is that um, and you talked about that you also uh, research in, in psychedelics, especially in terms of adult ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> sorry, and um, I thought it was also interesting that you said um, that's a whole generation that is looking for alternatives mm -hmm. in terms of, yeah, kind of support for mental health or if just normal psychotherapy doesn't, uh, it's not enough anymore. So could you elaborate on this a little bit? Because I find it particularly interesting because I know a lot of, of people, I feel in their 40s, 50s, especially mm -hmm. that generation, you could say, um, since they have not been, of course, most people have not ever been in touch with psychedelics and my millennials maybe just find this rather more normal as, as mm -hmm. we grow up with this now. But I mean, I feel especially this generation, maybe it's also Generation X or, like, or late millennials, it seems that they actually, especially they need, um, especially them need a lot of new tools to, for example, work on their adult ADHD, which is also something that I feel is just being addressed in the last couple of years. Well, it totally is. Um, look, I come from Generation Adderall, right, where my parents, you know, thought I ran around the room a little too much and, you know, didn't want to do my homework. Um, and suddenly that, you know, got classified as ADHD. Um, and so I was brought to a psychiatrist's office, I think at age 13, They sent me home with a bottle of Ritalin and there wasn't much follow. Right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I used that substances or in many ways probably abused those substances for much of high school uh, and into college definitely abused them. Um, and uh, that I think created other addictions in my life. I mean, I can't blame it all on, on the substance, but um, I think if your brain is trained to get that rush every morning um it's definitely dysregulating your, your dopamine levels in your brain and um you know the, this ties into sort of two things that we're working on at the company which i'll get into in a sec but 
Um, I agree with you. The kids have become adults now. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a bunch of things going on in society around, you know, how dopamine levels are in our, our brain. I mean, one can be, you know, the medication we've been on since kids. The other can be social media, um, you know, how we are now responding to that. I, I mean, these are, you know, serious issues that are all interconnected, yet as a society, um, we don't necessarily look at them uh, in a way that we could treat them as interconnected diseases, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, people with ADHD, I think 50% have anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Like, clearly, there's something connecting those two. Uh, we need to dig deeper. We need to understand that. Um, but that's an issue. And so, you know, now suddenly you're, you're on um, Adderall because you have ADHD and you're on Xanax or uh, some other sleeping pill because uh, you have anxiety. Um, to, to go to bed at night. And so that's not the solution either, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really kind of scary, actually. If you look at sort of just recent history here during COVID, um, well, from February 15th to March 15th, when this, when CNN and Fox News and um, you know, the BBC were all ramping up their coverage of COVID, uh, new prescriptions for Xanax made up 75% of all prescriptions during that time period in, in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you go back and you just look at the opioid crisis, I think it's something like a third of all overdose deaths had Xanax also, um, they, it was also in, in, in um, the victim's bloodstream with, with opioids. So, you know, we're, we've got a lot of issues that need to be dealt with. And I think we're going to need a more interconnected approach. And I think that psychedelics actually offer that hope. And so there's probably two ways to look at it. There's, there's what we classify as experiential or hallucinogenic therapies where you're going to go in and have that experience, but there might also be non hallucinogenic um, derivatives uh, or components of psychedelics that could be helpful uh, and we shouldn't ignore those either. Um, and so uh, I think there's still a lot that needs to get figured out and how you connect those two and, and, and balance them. Um, but it's something that as a company that we want to work on. I mean, it's if you read up about these like Valium, Xanax, Ritalin, how they and why they got created. Sometimes this is super scary, I find, especially with Valium for the housewives in the suburbs who just <laughs> should be quiet, like a, a little more quiet during the day and not get too worked up about their <laughs> horrible existence. Yeah, the Valium haze or the Xanax haze, it's kind of scary, actually. I mean, yeah, or I'm, written in because the, his, the, the creator's wife was called Rita. I mean, it's like, what? Yeah. No, seriously, it's really true. So, but I mean, um, so this is obviously a time that is not, you know, these kind of um, values also don't really work anymore, I feel, coming from the 50s or 60s almost. And, um, but 
so it seems that what, what you said earlier is that the, the biggest, our biggest challenge right now is almost like a, like a dopamine challenge. Mm -hmm. Keep up like a level. I mean, for example, like the easiest example is always spending a day on Instagram and feeling um, kind of um, manic depressive <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> kind yeah. The molecule of more, I think it's been described as. Right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, there's been a lot of research on, on dopamine um, and it's only really recently um, come into the mainstream around addiction mm -hmm. um, and as sort of a mechanism of action around addiction. And it's been really propagated by um, a leading uh, a doc, Dr. Nora Volkow, uh, who's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, mm -hmm. um, which uh, is sort of the foremost thought leader on you know, how do you deal with, with drug addiction uh, in America? And she's put out um, a lot of seminal pieces on, on dopamine and um, through, you know, through re these, these research papers. NIDA also um, sponsored uh, the preclinical work on our 18MC project mm -hmm. uh, or program, um, which is looking at opioid withdrawal and opioid use disorder. Uh, we principally believe that, you know, the cause uh, or the main thing that you need to solve an addiction is actually this dysregulation of dopamine. Um, it's, uh, you know, someone who has struggled with addiction. Uh, I can tell you getting sober is not the most difficult part of, of dealing with addiction. It's staying sober. Mm. And the thing that has always triggered me to relapse uh, in certain situations has been um, what we call cue-induced relapse. It's seeing a rolled-up dollar bill on a friend's nightstand or your favorite whiskey uh, bottle label uh, being poured out at a jazz bar, right? These cues um, trigger uh, you to crave this, this dopamine rush effectively. And that is ultimately what we want to fix. And so a lot of data around 18MC, which was discovered by Dr. Stan Glick at Albany Medical College, um, he actually did some really interesting work uh, in animals uh, where he addicted two groups of, of mice or rodents to, um, to cocaine. And every time the cocaine would come out, he would play Miles Davis. Uh, and he would put coke out on a, on a little plate and the rats could go over and get the coke. Um, he then uh, injected half of the, the group with uh, 18MC and put, you know, put them in a separate um, sort of separate cage and, but would play the music and this time would not put any cocaine out on the plate. As soon as the music would come on, the rats knew to go back over to the plate and, and get their Coke. So the first time around, they all went back over, found that there was no Coke, didn't get high, uh, and sort of like, you know, got bored and went back and did nothing. The, the second time around, the ones that didn't have 18MC in it scurried right over to the plate and like were jumping on the plate, like, where is my Coke? Whereas the ones with 18MC sort of like already knew that the rush wasn't coming and just didn't even bother. So 
I think that's super interesting. If we can solve this, this, this concept of Q-induced relapse, I think we can solve or, or certainly treat addiction uh, in a much better way that actually integrates people back into society. So, And I mean, I think that's what, what you just addressed is like such a, I mean, I feel like the way you talk about this is, is just maybe around for, I mean, maybe two, one or two years. And before there was no further in kind of, I mean, probably there were studies, of course, but you could never read up about that there's, there might be other problems behind addiction or behind relapse and everything. And, um, yeah. but which leads immediately to a thing that you also work on, uh, which I find also very fascinating. And I know lots of people who would be any minute ready to microdose if they mm. know more about it. So, and um, so you also collaborate with the, um, the university in Maastricht, I guess with Kim mm -hmm. Connors. Yep. I think is amazing. She's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, of course the project has the amazing title project Lucy. <laughs> so project, so, so project Lucy's are experiential dose um, okay. for anxiety, which we can talk about in a sec. I haven't come up with a cool idea of a name for our microdosing trial, but if you have anything, we, you know, okay. we, we need better wordsmiths. Um, okay. But yeah, no, we are, we are collaborating with uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kim. I always screw up her last name. So I've just reverted to saying Dr. Kim now, um, but uh, she's, she's awesome. I think she's one of the, you know, foremost thought leaders on microdosing and really has been digging into the science on it for quite a while. Um, and so we want to do a lot of work with her. Um, I think, you know, we're currently looking at ADHD. Um, we think that um, there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that people are microdosing to sort of achieve a new flow state to increase their focus. Um, so let's put it in a traditional indication and, and see if it works. It's a proof of concept trial. Um, we, you know, with this one, We, we will know in a relatively short period of time whether it is working. Um, but I don't think it's the only indication that microdosing can, can work for. Um, and I don't think in microdosing LSD is the only substance that microdosing can work for. Uh, so we're going to continue innovating there uh, and really want to build our microdosing division out into, into the leader in the space. Um, and uh, you know, I think we are really the first uh, company that's looking at mental health of microdosing uh, in a very serious manner. There's not a lot of evidence, scientific evidence that it works yet. Mm. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence and people swear by it in Silicon Valley and around the world. Um, but in order to, you know, make this into something that people can use on an everyday basis, um, we need rigorous science, we need clinical trials, and we also need you know, a way to safely dispense this to, to folks. Right. Um, and so that they can can take it home with them. Those are hurdles we're going to have to face with the FDA. But I think we have a, a good strategy around it. So, I mean, if you think it through, microdosing eventually would turn into medication. Right. I mean, a replace medication. Isn't that like the. Let's say the, the bigger picture, would you say that's the bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, I think I think both experiential therapies and microdosing have the potential to replace certain medications. The question is, are they done in a manner which is 
the same that a traditional pharmaceutical would be launched in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, experiential therapy, not something that's like really been developed as a business model in the pharma industry. Um, you know, you do have esketamine, but even with esketamine, you don't really have a lot of the aftercare um, integrated into that. Um, there's there's a lot of issues. Uh, I think I think esketamine was great that it broke down the door in, in many ways for for companies like ours and Compass and Tai. Um, but I think there's going to have to be a broader strategy on how you really reinvent the paradigm and effectively a new mental health care system um, that is based on these substances. And our objective as a company, and I don't think any of the other companies in the space, well, sorry, I think all the companies in the space have this. We don't want to put people on a pill a day for the rest of their lives. That's a stupid, messed up model. That's not solving an underlying issue for a patient. And, you know, we need to focus on, you know, how do you actually solve these problems for your customers and your patients, right? That is ultimately what is going to achieve um, a large industry, but it's also going to um, get people to come under this tent, right, to, to join us. I mean, if you can convince payers, the end of, uh, uh, the insurance providers in the United States, look, we can, you know, decrease the incidence of anxiety and depression by X, you know, you are going to have a lot of open ears um, and, and people that will join you. Uh, the current solutions aren't working. It's very, very clear. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you have heard that many times before from, from folks that you've, you've interviewed. So I think it's upon us to, reevaluate the, the pharma model um, and find a new way to um, really administer these medicines um, in a responsible approach for the patient. Uh, and I think, you know, all, we need to, as a company, obsess over the patient, right? Like that really is the critical need. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do. Okay. I mean, obviously, I mean, you know that probably hear that every day or you get it as a company also, like when people try to get in touch with you. I mean, even our platform has people writing from, I mean, in that case, more from Germany, but also around Europe writing basically emails saying, I'm on my 28th antidepressant, um, so if, if you can tell me what to do, I'm just, I kind of give up. So it's, and I literally had an email like that last week. And then I'm not yeah. a therapist, although, I mean, so it means people really seem to be way more desperate than ever before. Probably, I mean, that's the theory right now, triggered through COVID, of course, or through the challenges that are increasing. So everybody of course in the psychedelic field i feel has the question or tries to answer the question how the speed should be in that you approach that kind of let's say accelerated solution some people say you can't be too fast others say you can't be too slow because the need is just going through the roof so what, what is your take on the this the cruise control here kind of well uh you know, my opinion is, is what gets 
these solutions to patients fastest, right? And yeah, you need to do it in a manner that our government and society um, allows for. And to me, the most efficient and way to do that is through the FDA. And, and that might seem slow to some, some folks, but that's a process and that's how every medicine um, in the United States and, and EMA and in Europe um, gets approved. And so why reinvent the wheel during that process? Um, let's get it over the line and let's get it to people that need it. And we can think about, you know, how we are going to completely change mental health care along the way. But right now there is a pressing need. And so we're going to keep a pretty quick pace. And um, I understand, you know, the cautionary tale. And I understand, you know, why folks, you know, really think that things should slow down. But ultimately what drives real change is capital, uh, in my opinion. That is when you can rally the resources to actually help folks. And in order to do that, um, you know, people need to be motivated to provide that capital. And so I think we're in a good spot right now. Um, and I think uh, we are going to create a new industry, and that's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you said in this one interview I read that you want to create the antibiotic for addiction, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think so is... It's an oversimplification, but no, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, it's like a total elevator pitch, probably, in a, yeah. in a very good way. So, mm -hmm. and I think if you, if you, if you explain somebody what MindMan would do, um, that's probably what you could say. But I mean, how do you think this is going to look like also because we have now coming a couple of different psychedelics coming onto the, onto, onto the platforms that are getting researched by a time mm -hmm. or by you, not only, I mean, at the beginning, I, I felt like beginning means like six, seven months ago, the focus was pretty much only on, not only, but mostly on, on psilocybin, but now DMT comes forward, Ibogaine and, um, LSD suddenly through you guys is coming back in, in the picture in a way of to look at it as microdosing, uh, microdosing tools. So how do you think this antibiotic will look like? Or are there five antibiotics or 10? Well, look, an open market is, is ultimately what's going to be best for, for patients, right? Um, they're, to have choice on, you know, what is the best catalyst or substance um, for an experience uh, of change, I think is a good thing. And, um, you know, I think there are going to be multiple proof psychedelics out there, right? I think um, that's a good thing. And I think certain psychedelics will have certain um, indications um, and might be tailored better for a certain mental illness than another. And I think it's upon the companies and, the, and also the nonprofits working in the space to ultimately present the data to doctors to make that decision. Mm. You know, it's, it ultimately comes down to doctors and therapists that are the real ones doing the long-term work with their patient. And if we're viewing these substances as a panacea and a quick fix, um, we're looking at them in the wrong light. Mm. Uh, I think uh, you know, Dr. Gasser talks a lot about you know, 
one LSD session is not going to cure a patient for the rest of time. You know, there's going to need to be repeated potential of these experiences over the course of one's life. And that's really going to be a relationship with the therapist. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so we need to, to, to listen to the therapist and, and understand, you know, how this can be best implemented into society as well, because they're the ones that are going to be implementing it. And, um, you know, that is going to be a process. Humans don't necessarily scale in an amazing way, um, but we need to find ways to do that um, to get this medicine to the most amount of people. And um, I think that's a little bit where my Silicon Valley background and thinking actually comes into play. Mm-hmm. I think digital therapeutics, I think personalized medicine, these are all things that we need to start thinking about. One thing is the substance, and that's great, and, and we need to collect the data and make sure it's safe and effective. But we also need to look at the integration period afterwards. You know, there, there's just so much that can be done there, um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be done um, in a doctor's office. So uh, that's, that, those are things that are, are, are on my longer term thinking and, and, uh, on my desk. Mm-hmm. So that also means that there's like a, I mean, obviously everybody now has experienced how it is if you go through life with zoom or <laughs> pretty much everything, but I mean, yeah. of course, therapists too, they have their, their, um, patients actually, that I had, I mean, had to do therapy through that time, everything, everybody did everything on Zoom too. So it doesn't seem like a super crazy idea anymore now to kind of go on with, let's call it, I mean, there will be another thing than Zoom probably, but like it stands for like digital communication at this point, I think. Um, so, and I mean, I think also that you're right that the kind of, almost like there has to be like a translation of what you have seen in your trip. Um, mm-hmm. Because I mean, as you know, like you see like crazy things and <laughs> you're not going to be like a Disney character and then that's it. So <laughs> you have to know what, what it means. Disney character, that sounds like a good one. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> so. that's, a, that's, I mean, I talked to actually, I think to Rick Dobbin about this in, in the podcast that a lot of people seem to see a lot of Disney characters while doing psilocybin. Mm-hmm. So and I mean I don't know if yeah and then there's entities in DMT I mean there's all sorts of yeah. things that need to be translated better and better exactly. understood I, I totally agree um, you know I think this is but again you know does that necessarily the experience might have to happen in a in a you know a health facility but a lot of the aftercare. I think there's going to be pretty interesting ways that we can be more supportive to people in society. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, while all of this isolation is scary, um, it's funny, but I've never felt more connected in my life to my global set of friends. Right. I've never had more conversations that last an hour or 45 minutes in my life. Like, you know, people have more time because they're not focused on the hustle and the bustle. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it sucks. I'm sitting at home, but I'm also like really in touch with a lot of people all of a sudden. And so there is, it's something to think about. I always kind of had like 
before I started MindMed, I, I also had this sort of fear um, that a lot of the technologies my friends and I were working on in Silicon Valley were really um, displacing humans. And we were on the verge of an existential crisis mm -hmm. um, that humanity had never really seen. Probably, I think it's going to be bigger than what we saw in the Industrial Revolution. And that is, you know, people are going to wake up and they don't have anything to do, right? I mean, well, that's all been fast forwarded, right? So there's 40 million Americans out of a job. Um, they don't have anything to do. Uh, I don't know what the figures are in Europe, but I can't imagine they're too dissimilar. And so we are going to have to deal with mental and health in illnesses and, in and the incidence of these illnesses in a way that we've never seen before. And that is really, really scary to me, but it's also a huge opportunity to figure out a new mental health care system and support system. It's not just about dosing people with psychedelics. It's, you know, how do we support people through their lives? And I think there's a bunch of ways that we can do that, but I think, I think society is going to start valuing their mental health much more after COVID-19 Mm -hmm. finally comes to an end. Well, I mean, even bef shortly before there was this, I mean, the, the main thing that people talked about, I feel in that sense was this expression of the useless class by um, Yuval Harari that that means if you're a member of this, you will, let's say, you will be in danger to have mental health problems because your job or your passion <laughs> Um, has gone because it's replaced by technology. Mm. And I feel that, in, like you say, in the crisis, I feel um, a lot of people started to rethink their lives in total, like in a way that, is this still what I want to do? And do I still see a future in this? So in a weird way, I feel this is like a, a, strange, um, a strange time where these things almost getting thought through by a lot of people in a different well, maybe but maybe it's the maybe it's a global awakening right? maybe yeah. it is Ideally. maybe it is an opportunity for that you know people have are going to have probably six to 12 months to self-reflect on what is their actual mission in life mm -hmm. what are what do they want to achieve and yeah. you know how do they want to live their lives do they want to live those in cities in this you know a, a small studio yeah i think i think uh, mental health is going to equate to physical health like it's never been seen before when mm -hmm. after this, this crisis is over. And I think, you know, there are so many reasons why, um, but isolation is scary. And, um, you know, when you see like the rat park models, for example, where addiction goes up 19 fold in, in animals that are isolated versus animals that are, you know, not isolated. Yeah we've got our work cut out for us in this space uh, over the next, you know, five to 10 years, because these things don't just like go away with a vaccine, right? No. Like they no. pervade society for years and years to come. And so I just think that psychedelic inspired medicines are our biggest hope and we need to, to work together to, to get them to the people that need them. Absolutely. And One last question. What, what is the psychedelic that you're most fascinated by? Personally? Ooh, good question. Um, 
Look, I, you know, for me, uh, I'm fascinated with LSD. Uh, it's always uh, been an extremely interesting substance. And I think it's the one where the most amount of thinking can be done on. That's my personal opinion. There are folks that, you know, don't think that, but uh, I, I like, I just, yeah, I think that it works. Um, what I'm really interested in is how do we make, you know, next generation psychedelics. Um, mm -hmm. You know, LSD was invented in the 40s. We've got a lot of new technology now. Um, I think, uh, you know, also how do you optimize the dose? Like that's something as a company we're working on. And um, I think that's going to be extremely important to make these effective medicines is, is dose optimization um, and personalization. Uh, and something that we're investing into and we're working a lot with Dr. Leakty on. Um, and so I also think that combining different psychedelics for different effects um, in the right modality can be extremely effective and therapeutic. So for example, combining MDMA and LSD might become one of the like, most pervasive and effective medicines for certain indications and something that we're looking at. Okay. Well, thank you so much. That was really interesting and a very new perspective on on such a big player company. I mean, if you look at it from outside, it always seems like it's one of the top players. And then you always have this idea of this anonymous <laughs> Silicon Valley thing. But it's actually a very interesting, um, an interesting time how also even companies like you guys become suddenly very, um, yeah, like human or just, you can see what people are thinking and doing and it's like a very transparent culture, I feel. It's important and, and transparency is, is the key to make any organization, community um, or, or system work. And so we need more increased transparency and it's something I believe deeply in. Um, mm. So I'm actually reading Ray Dalio's book right now and, And, and oh. that's, if you want to talk about transparency in an organization, it's super interesting, right? Okay. Perfect. Well, thank you for being on the show. Um, I hope very soon on the YouTube show. <laughs> yes, we'll make it happen. And um, I talk to you very soon, hopefully. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.